I invite you to turn in God's Word to Romans chapter 8, to read the first eight verses there. We are studying tonight the doctrine of total depravity or total inability, which is the biblical teaching that man of himself is utterly unable to seek God until God comes to him and gives him a new heart. So we hear about that condition, especially in the last verses we'll read here, verses 7 and 8. Romans 8, at verse 1, God's holy word. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then I invite you to turn from the Scriptures to the Church's Confession and that Forms and Prayers book in front of you to the Canons of Dort, page 271 in the book, 271. If you're visiting with us, this is one of the three confessions we use, which are summaries of God's Word, and this one has an interesting history written in 1618 and 1619 at the Synod of Dortrecht in Holland or the Netherlands, due to the fact that the followers of Jacob Arminius, the Arminians, were teaching some doctrines in error, one of them being man's partial depravity, that man is sick in sin, but not utterly incapable of doing anything. And so we're up to page 271, which is the third and fourth main points of doctrine. This uh, third chapter actually combines two chapters. Remember, the, the canons are written in response to the five points of the Arminians. And so it's, going, it's responding to those five points, but it combines its answer to their points three and four in one chapter here. We want to look at these first three articles. Article one, the effect of the fall on human nature. Man was originally created in the image of God and was furnished in his mind with a true and salutary knowledge of his creator and things spiritual in his will and heart with righteousness, and in all his emotions with purity. Indeed, the whole man was holy. However, rebelling against God at the devil's instigation and by his own free will, he deprived himself of these outstanding gifts. Rather, in their place, he brought upon himself blindness, terrible darkness, futility, and distortion of judgment in his mind, perversity, defiance, and hardness in his heart and will, and finally, impurity in all his emotions. Article 2, the spread of corruption. 
Man brought forth children of the same nature as himself after the fall. That is to say, being corrupt, he brought forth corrupt children. The corruption spread by God's just judgment from Adam to all his descendants, except for Christ alone. And it spread not by way of imitation, as in former times the Pelagians would have it, but by the propagation of his perverted nature. Article 3, total inability. Therefore, all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin, Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such reform. The church confesses on the basis of God's word. Let's bow and ask for God's help, shall we? Heavenly Father, we bow once more on this Lord's Day before you to ask for your grace to us through the reading and the preaching of your word. Father, you have given to us the promise that you will work through this means. We come then with expectation. but We acknowledge, O Lord, that our faith is weak. Our hearts don't desire you as much as they should. And we need you, O Lord, to arrest us by your spirit and to enlighten us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you bless us through your word tonight, that we'd be humbled to sing for joy at the great thing you've done for us by the power of our Lord Jesus. Hear us and help us, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, people of God, we often summarize the five chapters or main points of doctrine in the canons of Dort, the standards of Dort. Under the acronym of TULIP, the T for total depravity, and the, the U for unconditional election, and the L for limited atonement, and the I for irresistible grace, and the P for the perseverance of the saints. But the careful student of the canons of Dort realizes, of course, that that's not the order in which the canons proceeds. The order is actually OLTIP. And so we've already given attention to the biblical doctrine of unconditional election. And then we considered the doctrine of limited atonement or definite atonement. We saw that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that Christ was sent to die for the ones whom God chose, and now we're coming to this doctrine of total depravity. Now, this happens in many ways because the, the canons, I said, are responding to the five points of the Arminians, and yet the tulip, which begins with total depravity, is... It's not a, a bad arrangement, is it? Because when we speak in that way, it's very true that, that all the understanding of these doctrines of grace, that they flourish in the context of our depravity, or they shine against the backdrop of our total inability. In other words, to talk about God's election and why we need God to choose us, to talk about Christ's death and why Christ had to die to actually save and not make salvation possible. And to talk about, as we hope to do, irresistible grace that the Spirit comes and gives to us life. The reason these things are necessary is because we are totally unable to seek God in ourselves. We need God to do everything. And so, all of God's saving grace is necessary precisely because of our condition. 
Now, as we come to this tonight, we can confess that we're not always as excited about studying total depravity as we ought to be. But when we really grasp what we are apart from Christ, and our hearts are humbled, then not only does the work of God shine in its glory, but our hearts sing with wonder. We sometimes get a little bored with the gospel. We, we, we get a little bored with, with what the Lord has done. We, we lack appreciation. We even dare to accuse God of not doing something in my life I think I need done. But you see, all that can be eclipsed and dissipated if we recognize how desperate our condition was and we're amazed again at grace that God saved me. But for the grace of God, if we want to rejoice with a real and deep-seated joy, with sincere gratitude to God, we need a holy amazement that I never in three billion years would have sought God, but he sought me and he saved me. Praise be to God. I was not just a little sick spiritually or in need of a little direction in my life. I was a rebel who hated God. I was, I was dead in my sin. I was a slave to sin. And God gave me life. Praise be to God. Now, in the canons of Dort, this third and fourth points are combined in one chapter. And there's an important reason for that. One of the reasons is that when you read what the Arminians wrote in their point about total depravity, it actually sounds pretty good. Were I to read that to you tonight, you'd probably say, I agree with that. They had it right on. But it became clear in the next point when they talked about the kind of grace we need and how we have to cooperate with that grace, that suddenly it became apparent that what they said about total depravity, they didn't mean. They don't mean it the way we mean it and the way we think the Bible means it. And so... The reformers saw it necessary to speak to these two points at once, and that's why you have the third and fourth head of doctrine. But let's look at this tonight. As God declares to us our total inability, we want to look at three points this evening as we follow through the biblical teaching summarized in those three articles. And the first thing we want to see tonight is that our freedom was forfeited. Our freedom was forfeited. Article one of this third and fourth head of doctrine take us back to creation where man was made originally in the image of God, were made to be like God and fit for fellowship with God, and we were blessed with certain faculties or powers in our human nature. Think of three of those. Number one, our mind. Being made in God's image, we were given a mind to think God's thoughts after him. We, we were not created as puppets on strings just to be pulled this way and that way without any thought on our part, but we were given a mind to to receive revelation from God, to ponder it, and therefore to speak from the mind to God. We were given a true knowledge of God. And then think, secondly, the fact we were also given a will. A will, that's the volitional aspect of our being. We, we choose, we make choices. And so we are not created as robots just to be programmed and to do whatever we are programmed to do. But we are made in receiving that revelation of God to make a choice in response to that revelation of God, to choose what was righteous and pleasing to God, we had a holy will, a holy mind and a holy will. And then thirdly, we were endowed by our Creator with affections or emotions. We were given desires and feelings, and all these desires and feelings were pure and holy. 
So the holiness of man was complete in mind and will and affection. And that's the image bearer that God set in his garden. And God gave to his image bearer the test, don't eat of this one tree. And the only thing that distinguished this one tree was the word of God. It looked good like the other trees, but the word of God said no. And so God tested man and tested his mind and his will and his affections. Would he obey God for God's sake? And what did man do? Did he choose to love and obey God? We do confess that man was created with a free will. With a free will. He could choose to sin or not to sin. He wasn't created as a rock for God to pick him up and move him around. He wasn't created like a robot. He wasn't created as a puppet. He was created as a human life with volition, with a will to choose. Eve, deceived by the serpent, chose to eat of the fruit. And Adam, not deceived, willfully chose to eat of the fruit. Man exercised his free will to rebel against God. And it's exactly that that makes sin so ugly. That man treacherously chose against his loving creator for sin, for himself. Man did not have a mechanical malfunction. It wasn't that his robotic circuitry failed or shorted out. You know, we've, we've had airplanes in the United States have crashed due to mechanical malfunction. Something went wrong. But we've also had airplanes crash and kill many people by willful choice, right? Not of the airplanes, but of the pilots. Flying them into the Twin Towers, for instance. We speak of the fall into sin. Sometimes we get mixed up. It wasn't a little stumble into sin. It was a plunge into sin. It was a willful, violent, treacherous choice to betray God. Man chose. And what happened? What was the result of this choice to sin? Well, all those faculties of man, all those powers of man's nature were defiled and corrupted. So the canons say in Article 3, or Article 1 of Chapter 3, that however rebelling against God at the devil's instigation by his own free will, he deprived himself of these outstanding gifts. Rather, in their place, he brought upon himself Blindness, terrible darkness, futility, and distortion of judgment in his mind. Now the mind of man is darkened. Man cannot see. He cannot understand. His thinking is vain. He's illogical in that sense. He loves the lie. He's impressed with himself. And then we confess that perversity, defiance, and hardness in his heart and will... His will is not now pure and holy, but it's defiant. Hatred of God. Romans chapter 8 says that the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Man is not subject to God's law. He doesn't bow beneath the law of the living God. And he can't do it, the word says. And then his emotions, the emotions of fallen man, 
faces, the canon says, impurity, impurity in all his emotions. Now, we don't delight in the things that delight God. We don't love the things that love God. We don't sorrow over the things that God hates, but we love the things God hates. So the situation of man is desperate. Man reaps the consequence. He deprives himself of these outstanding gifts. And yet, the rule of God for man remains the same. Man has a free will still today, in a sense, because man still chooses, right? If man didn't have a will anymore, then sin wouldn't be sin, right? If we're just, we're just facing some malfunction, and we aren't responsible for it. But every sin we commit is a choice, and that's what makes sin ugly. Man has a free will in the sense that he's not coerced, he's not forced by something outside of himself to choose in the way he chooses. But his will is not really free, as we'll see. Because it's a will that's hardened in sin. This led Martin Luther to say in his book, The Bondage of the Will, which, by the way, was a response to Erasmus's work, The Freedom of the Will, in which Erasmus made terrible arguments. In fact, Luther for a long time didn't reply to Erasmus's work, and, and people thought, what's going on? Does Luther think Erasmus made good arguments? He can't reply. And when Luther begins to make his reply, he tells Erasmus, I didn't reply to you because I felt so sorry for you because your arguments were so, so bad and so beneath you. What did Erasmus argue? Well, Erasmus argued that because the word of God says you must do something, you must turn to Christ, you must believe, therefore you must be able to do that. Well, that's a terrible argument. Just because God commands something doesn't mean we're able to do it. The fall into sin doesn't change God's commands and demands, but it sure changes us. So Luther wrote, free will is an empty term whose reality is lost. And a lost liberty, according to my grammar, is no liberty at all. Similarly, John Calvin wrote, man is said to have free will not because he has a free choice of good and evil, but because he acts voluntarily and not by compulsion. This is perfectly true. But why should so small a matter have been dignified with so proud a title? Yeah, man has free will and that he's not coerced. He gets to choose. But given that man is so utterly depraved, he always chooses sin. Why should such small matter be dignified, the great free will of man? No. No, the will of man is nothing to boast in. The will of man is enmity, hatred towards God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Doesn't mean we don't choose. We just choose what we want to choose apart from Christ. And what we want to choose before Christ changes us is not Christ. It's not God's way. Bettner uses the illustration of a bird with a broken wing. It's free to fly away. But because it has a broken wing, it can't fly away. Does man have a free will? Sure. You can stand on your rooftop and fly away to heaven if you want. No one's going to stop you. But are you really too free to fly away? Well, no, because you can't fly. 
This is the nature of man. We have forfeited our true freedom to choose what is holy and righteous and good. But then secondly tonight, let's notice that that corruption has now spread to all. Not only was the freedom forfeited by Adam in the garden, but that corruption has spread to all mankind. That's Article 2 of the Canons of Dort, which which reflects the biblical teaching of Romans 5, that we have a, a covenant head, Adam, in whom we sinned. Sin came into the world through the one man, and through this man then death spread to all. Death came to all men because all sinned, Romans 5.12. And what does that entail? Well, the doctrine of original sin is that truth that the fall into sin has affected all of us in two ways, guilt and corruption. In Adam, we all became guilty before God, unrighteous. We couldn't stand before God. But it wasn't just that our record was defiled before God. We became guilty but also that we were internally corrupted, our hearts. That was the pollution. And you don't have to read very far into Genesis to discover how that works out. Adam and Eve have a couple boys, and one of their sons kills the other one. Striking, isn't it? The first couple on earth have a son who murders his brother. He didn't become a sinner. Cain did not become a sinner when he sinned. He sinned because he was a sinner. And the story just gets sadder in one way, doesn't it? Genesis 6, verse 5, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So he sends the flood, saves eight people, and then after the flood, God says, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And the covenantal line develops, doesn't it? God working salvation through history, but, but then David cries out, not as an excuse, but as a confession. Psalm 51, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And there's some mystery, isn't it, on how, how is this great depravity passed on from generation to generation? But though there's mystery in the way of transmission, there is no mystery in the reality of transmission. God, in judgment, visits this upon all of Adam's children. We're all guilty and depraved by nature. And so rightly we confess in Article 2 of the Canons that man brought forth children of the same nature as himself after the fall. That is to say, being corrupt, he brought forth Corrupt children. And then the article goes on to say that this corruption spread by God's just judgment from Adam to all his descendants except Christ, not by way of imitation, as the Pelagians would have it, but by way of propagation of his perverted nature. You know the name of Augustine, right? Augustine. One who understood something about free grace. Actually, it was to Augustine that the Reformers so frequently appealed. Calvin, if you you read his Institutes, there's all kinds of references to Augustine. Because he was showing that that this doctrine of free grace was not something he was making up. It's what Augustine taught in the 4th century. But Augustine did battle with Pelagius. Pelagius, that British monk who insisted that man is not born with a corrupt nature, but but rather man 
becomes corrupt or begins to do corrupt things because he witnesses other people doing them and he begins to imitate them. And so Pelagius said, it's not that we have a corrupt nature, but that we imitate corrupt people. Now, not only does that idea plainly conflict with the scriptures, but it's completely absurd. We might ask Pelagius, why is the the example or pattern of wickedness so powerful? Why doesn't man imitate good people? If, if wickedness is just a learned habit, not innate to children of Adam, then why does it spread so powerfully? When the canons of Dort bring up the name Pelagius in Article 2, they were pointing out that The Arminian understanding of human nature is a kind of Pelagianism. It's a semi-Pelagianism. That that though the Arminians wanted to confess that that man is depraved, they didn't understand how depraved man is. They they wanted to retain for something, something of man, something of man's ability to cooperate with God and his grace. The Arminians did not really believe that man's condition was as hopeless and helpless as the Scriptures say. But they insisted that man must do something. He must respond to God. He must prepare the way. He must cooperate in some way in order to receive faith. And same today, many of our people are teaching that man's will has the ability. Many, many want to believe that, that all people have the ability to respond to God and to the gospel. And what distinguishes a Christian from a non-Christian is the Christian found within himself to choose God. But it doesn't fit with what the scriptures say about man. The fleshly mind is hatred to God. It's enmity. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. They cannot please God. What would please God? That men should turn to him and bow down before Christ. Men cannot do that. They cannot please God. So we see that this corruption has spread to all men. And that leaves us finally tonight to realize that escape has become impossible, humanly speaking. Escape has become impossible, humanly speaking. Let's look at how the Bible describes the sinful state of man apart from Jesus Christ. Number one, the Bible says that man, the sinner, the unregenerate man, is dominated by sin. Romans 6 says he's a slave to sin. A slave to sin. 2 Timothy 2.26, he's ensnared by the devil, having been taken captive to do his will. And Jesus in John 8.34 answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What's the nature of slavery? The nature of slavery is that you can't get out. You're bound. And so though sinful man is not bound by God, God doesn't force him to sin, he is bound by sin. He's chained to sin. Secondly, the Bible describes the non-born-again sinner as severely spiritually disabled. He's spiritually blind, unable to hear or understand God's truth. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says that the natural person... And that's the person who's not spiritual or born again. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 
for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Sinful mind is darkened, spiritual eyes are blinded. Lorraine Bettner writes, Man in the natural state cannot even see the kingdom of God, much less can he get into it. An uncultured person may see a beautiful work of art as an object of vision, but he has no appreciation of its excellence. He may see the figures of a complex mathematical equation, but they have no meaning for him. Horses and cattle may see the same beautiful sunset or other phenomenon in nature that men see, but they are blind to all the artistic beauty. So it is when the gospel of the cross is presented to the unregenerate man. He may have an intellectual knowledge of the facts and doctrines of the Bible, but he lacks all spiritual discernment of their excellence and finds no delight in them. The same Christ is to one man without form or comeliness that we should desire him, but to another he is the Prince of life and the Savior of the world, God manifest in the flesh, whom it is impossible not to adore, love, and obey. It's baffling, isn't it? Speak to neighbors and coworkers about the Christ we love and worship, and they say, How can it be? The Bible says they're blind. Thirdly, the Bible describes man as dead in sin. Dead in sin, spiritual death. Ephesians 2 says that so clearly, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were dead, and God made us alive. We're not spiritually sick. We were dead. We know that there's a big difference, isn't there? Spiritually sick, we keep them in the hospital. Seek to nurse them to health. We expect their bodies to cooperate in fighting the infection. The dead, we put in a casket and we bury them. Those who are sick can still do something. Those who are dead cannot shoo a fly off their nose. They're dead. So the idea that man is, you know, drowning in the ocean and God throws him a life preserver. He just, all he has to do is take hold. I think the Bible would say, no, that's not a fit analogy. Man is drowned at the bottom of the sea. He needs to be rescued, brought to the surface, put on the shore, life breathed into him, resuscitated. He's dead. So sinful man is a slave to sin. He's totally disabled. He's dead in sin. But, but maybe even worse than all of this is that he is all of those things willingly. It's not just that he can't come to Christ, but he doesn't want to come to Christ. John 3 tells us that men loved darkness. And Jesus said in John 8, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. You want to do. And so we need to banish from our thought this idea that there's all these people in the world who are just searching for God. They, they are so ready. They just have to find him. 
Maybe God's hiding from them. God should do more and show himself. They just want him. They're just searching for him. The Bible says there's no such thing. If they're searching for God, it means the Spirit is working in their hearts. He's giving a new heart. There's not all these people wishing to be set free. Man is not even neutral towards God. It's not just that he's neutral, but he's actually an enemy of God. The fleshly mind is enmity against God. It hates God. It rejects God. It despises God. So is man free to choose? Does he have a free will? Sure. But he always chooses in accordance with who he is. So really, all the choices we make, we always choose what we prefer. We always choose what we prefer. Now, sometimes we say, no, I don't. I'm choosing what I don't want to do. Well, no, you're actually choosing what you've decided is the better choice. I mean, even if you choose to go on a diet, as, as unappetizing as that might be, you, you choose it for a reason, because you prefer it as the choice. You see, we choose in accordance with our nature. We choose in accordance with what we desire. So man is free to choose God any day of the week. God is not keeping any man from choosing him. But man's own sin, man's own character, man's own depraved nature means he's a slave to sin. He's spiritually broken. He's blind to the glory of God. He's hostile to God. He hates God. He rejects God. In fact, he would rather spit in God's face and go to hell than turn to God. And so it's humbling. Do we really believe this about ourselves? You know, if you grew up in a Christian home, and from your earliest memories, you remembered that you, you, know, you were convicted by the word of God, you, you confessed you loved God, you trusted Jesus, you wanted to obey his word, and then it's sometimes hard to believe that that was ever my heart, that my heart was ever what Romans 8 describes here. But it's important for us to be humbled, to believe that the word of God accurately describes us. Because we won't sing of God's grace as we should unless we believe what the word of God says. And if we keep drawing a distinction between ourselves and somebody who came to Christ later in life, or if we tend to think that there's a difference between me and the coworker, the unbelieving neighbor, because I'm different of myself, then this creates pride in us, doesn't it? We, brothers and sisters, we're one with all of humanity. We are, with every person we meet, we are children of Adam. And you can know that every human being you encounter in this life, you are one with him in the fall. And if your life is different because you now believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you love his glory, then it's because God took hold of you. God changed you. It's nothing of man. There's no solutions to be found in man. It's humanly impossible. It's not that some better education would do it. It's not that there's just a bad moral habit that needs to be broken. It's not that there's some psychological illness that, that can be adjusted. Depraved by nature. Totally unable to seek God. We have to believe that about the children of the church too, don't we? 
It's not that children born to believers have this innate sense that God is God, His Word is true. Our children, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, are blind. Their ears are deaf, their hearts are hard, their minds are corrupt. Every one of us, even the smallest child, needs grace. We don't need a helping hand from God. We don't need a little medicine. We don't need a life preserver thrown to us. We need to remember Jeremiah 13. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to evil. You can't change your nature. Only God can. Only God can. So we're humbled before our Lord, but in being humbled, we are amazed at grace. Do you know that grace tonight? Have you been humbled before the Lord? Have you confessed it lately? Do you begin every day again saying, wow, what a wonder that you, God, are attractive to me, that I can delight in your law, that Jesus Christ is the Savior I embrace. This is nothing that I would have ever done, but you came to me. You rescued me. You sought me out, and I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved me to seek him, the one who is seeking me. What a glorious God. Romans 8 says that the sinful mind can't submit, cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, verse 9, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 10, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit of Christ, that's the glorious answer to our dead condition. And so we confess with Jonah that salvation belongs to the Lord, to the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word keeps humbling us because only, Lord, as we are willing to confess that we contributed nothing, are we able to give you all the glory due your name. We confess, O Lord, that salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, received by faith alone, and therefore we have nothing to boast in. All the glory is yours. You are the Savior, and we praise you for saving us. We pray, Lord, for loved ones. We pray for neighbors. We pray for coworkers. We pray, Lord, for those whose whose eyes are are so dark, who have no interest in the things we'd love to speak to them about, who are actually hostile and angry as we mention the name Jesus. Lord, we see the truth of your word revealed in such hearts and minds. And yet, Lord, in seeing that and finding your word true in its description of man's depravity, we know your word is also true. And promising that where your spirit comes to breathe new life, that there is life indeed. And so we pray, God, that you would raise dead hearts from their death, that you would breathe new life into barren souls, that you would open the blind eyes and open the deaf ears, and that, Father, if you would use us speaking the word, that you would do that. Glory be to you, the Lord of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.